Well, brethren, if you would, take your copy of the Scriptures and turn to Mark chapter 3. And as you're making your way there, uh, I'll mention last Sunday morning in our Sunday school study with Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, we were briefly reflecting on the perplexing issue of the unforgivable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And while Dr. Ferguson not really defined for us the the unforgivable sin so much as he described the inner Trinitarian impact of this sin, a failure to give honor to Christ is to fail to acknowledge the honor the Father would have for His Son, and a failure to bow the knee to King Jesus would fail to give Jesus joy in the Holy Spirit. That was His focus. And yet... The topic stirred a host of questions. I was asked many questions about this issue immediately following Sunday school, after the morning service, after the evening service, and I thought, you know, maybe I need to preach on this. Some are going to wonder about this sin, the unforgivable sin. Have I committed it? Others, is it possible to commit it? Some, perhaps most of us, how do I describe it? What actually is it? Now, I'm under no illusion as I preach this one-off sermon on the subject that this is the last word and will settle every issue that you might have, but it seemed pastorally responsible to preach on the matter immediately and to try to help and give some understanding. So we're doing that, and we're looking at Mark chapter 3, and we're in the middle of what some have called one of Mark's sandwich narrative, where he tells a story, interrupts with another story, and then comes back to the first story. Here we have a story about family, that Jesus is crazy. Look at chapter 3, verse 21. His family is saying, he, Jesus, is out of his mind. And then that's interrupted by a story saying Jesus is demonic. And we pick up there in verse 22, and I'll read to verse 30. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, As we come to Your Word, we are conscious of our need for help. Lord, we pray that Your Holy Spirit would work in us now to enlighten our eyes with the truth and to lead our hearts to love our Savior and to fight against sin. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here, brethren, as I read God's Word, Mark 3.22, And the scribes, who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, He cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Well, thus far, God's holy word, and may he bless it to us. 
The scribes in our passage are saying that Jesus casts out demons by the power of Beelzebul. It's just another name for the devil. Well, Jesus takes that claim head on and He refutes it by expressing that He has bound the strong man, the devil. He is not a lunatic, as His family seem to think. He is not a liar. But He is the Lord. And then Jesus speaks, exercising His power as the Lord of the matter of forgiveness. And He has two crucial things to say. And we're focusing here on verses 28 to 30. First, Jesus tells us about forgiveness for every kind of sin. Forgiveness for every kind of sin. And it's there in verse 28. Now again, Jesus has been answering this absurd claim of the scribes that he somehow is possessed by Satan. He answers it with a parable. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Satan can't drive out Satan. That doesn't make any sense. Satan's power has been overcome, not because Satan is fighting against himself, but because Satan is being attacked by a superior foe, me, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, having answered that absurd charge, Jesus now turns to explain the consequence of saying that He is working by the devil's power. Such a slanderous statement against the Spirit-filled Savior is worthy of an unparalleled judgment. It is an eternal sin. But to spell out the heinousness of the scribe's sin, Jesus first, in contrast, speaks a glorious word of mercy. And I don't want you to miss it, because this is one of the most striking statements of forgiveness in the Bible. Before Jesus tells us what's unforgivable, He tells us what can be forgiven. Look at verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, or children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Notice how Jesus starts. Truly, I say to you. That's really the question at hand in the context, isn't it? Is Jesus telling the truth? He's being accused of being a deceiver. And that calls for the most serious rebuttal, a clear assertion of the truth. But the prophetic formula at such a time, at least according to the Old Testament way of speaking, would now be to say, thus says the Lord, but that is not what Jesus says. He says, truly, I say to you. What does that mean? Brethren, Jesus is speaking in His own name as the truth. And He is claiming that His words are equivalent to the words of God. He has a definitive word on the situation. Only God has the right to speak like this. But that's just it. Jesus is God incarnate. And He's speaking with absolute authority. Therefore, He cannot be contradicted or ignored. Twelve other times in Mark's Gospel, Jesus will repeat this refrain. Truly, I say to you. And each time it heightens the seriousness of what's being said. It's as though Jesus is saying, what I'm about to say to you is a most vital truth and eternity hangs in the balance. You better listen. But it begins with mercy. All sins will be forgiven the children 
man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Now, brethren, see the divine prerogative that Jesus is taking here. He is daring to say, who can be forgiven? Who can do that? But God alone. And Jesus is daring to say, who will actually be forgiven? The children of man, various people, sinners. Well, what sins will be forgiven them? All sins. How many sins? All of them. Not some, not most, but all sins. How amazing is that? And then there is an elaboration, literally, all sins and as much as they might blaspheme, it shall be forgiven. Brethren, pause and consider what Jesus is saying here and what it means for us. The holy God who dwells in unapproachable light, who is just in His judgments, righteous in all of His ways, who is perfection itself and will tolerate nothing less than clean hands and a pure heart in His presence. He will forgive sins. All kinds of sins. Now, He doesn't forgive them with no regard for His own justice. He forgives them because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ is declaring to us that He has come to pay our debt. But it's absolutely astounding that God is willing to forgive at all. Jesus is saying, I tell you the truth. All sins will be forgiven you and however blasphemies you utter. If you've had other gods before the true God as Manasseh, who filled the temple in Judah and Jerusalem with idols and then repent, you will be forgiven. If you have made idols and bowed down to them like Aaron did to the golden calf or Abram did for 75 years before God sought him and called him, and then you repent, you will be forgiven. If you've taken the name of God in vain and disregarded him and his law like the prodigal son, and then turned to Christ, you will be forgiven. If you have violated God's holy day like Nicodemus had done his entire life as a Pharisee and repent, you will be forgiven. If you have dishonored authority like Samson dishonored his parents, or like, like Miriam and Aaron dishonored Moses as the spiritual authority, if you have been a murderer like Moses and David, or an adulterer like David, or a serial adulterer like the woman at the well, or engaged in prostitution like Rahab, or homosexuality as had some at Corinth, if you've stolen as had the thief on the cross, if you've borne false witness as Peter did when he denied the Lord three times, if you've coveted like Paul said he did in Romans 7, if you've done any of that or all of it and then repented, trusting in Jesus Christ, you will be forgiven. Brethren, we can put faces of the saints on violations of every kind of sin covered in the Ten Commandments. And yet all who seek pardon in Jesus, to all of them comes the mercy of God. 
Truly the psalmist is right. Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, were to mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, Lord, there is forgiveness that you may be feared, or better, maybe you may be worshipped. Dear friends, are you here tonight awed by the forgiveness of God? Are you joyfully giving thanks to God the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light because He's delivered over His Son that you might be redeemed and cleanse you with His blood? Do you see the high cost of your pardon? The very blood of the Lamb of God? And do we live every single day remembering what we were and how God has made us new by the blood of Jesus? We should never get tired of hearing the sweet forgiveness found in Christ. But what a blasphemy. Can this really be forgiven? Well, there's no better testimony than that of the Apostle Paul. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. Paul says, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Jesus' grace to Paul was abundant to pardon his blasphemy. And then Paul goes on to declare the greatness of Christ coming into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost. Paul is saying, I'm a trophy of the grace of God. And his argument is, if I can be forgiven, anyone can be forgiven. What are we to make of all this? Well, Jesus is preaching to a hostile crowd, the scribes, about why He came. Why did He come? He came to bring forgiveness. Brethren, He comes with good news for sinners. Jesus, the authority, Jesus, the Son of God, has authority to forgive sin, to bind up our wounds, because He goes to bear our burden on the cursed tree. He comes to lift the weight of our guilt off of us, to take sins of thought, word, and deed from our youth to our old age, in the language of Hebrews, to put them away. As far as the east is from the west, so far has Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection removed our sin. I tell you, Jesus came not merely to give you the hope that someday, somehow, you might be forgiven. He came to do what was necessary so that He could say to us, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. This is no vain hope. It is a certainty for those who trust in Christ. Well, do you trust Him? Are you rejoicing in Him? Brethren, are we clinging to Christ knowing that in Him our guilt is gone and sin no longer has a claim on us? And I say tonight, if you're here, friend, and you're burdened by sin, no matter what you've done, from idolatry to persecution, from backsliding to blasphemy, if you trust in Christ who defeats the devil, if you repent and rest on Jesus who hides 
all your transgressions from view, that though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. If you're here tonight as a Christian conscious of your own sinfulness, maybe you're freshly sensible of your need for mercy from God, then you have a precious word from Jesus. A word that's spoken to us with all the authority of heaven. That if we cling to Christ, no sin shall ever drag us down to the pit of hell. It doesn't matter how loud the strong man, the devil, roars against us. There is a stronger man who has bound him. And we have pardon in him. How can we hear such words and fail to hope? Fail to run to Jesus. Fail to rest in Jesus. Fail to rejoice in Jesus. Because there's forgiveness for all kinds of sins. And you need forgiveness. Well, if you need it, come to Christ. Come to the fountain for sin and uncleanness. Come and know light and joy and life and peace and endless love. And if you're a Christian, this is yours. You have forgiveness. Do you know how freeing that is? You have forgiveness. You may be here tonight and you're weary you're cold, you're doubting, you're weak, and you're afflicted. But you've come to Jesus and all your sins are gone. What a word. But then secondly, see, in contrast to the glad tidings of the Gospel, there is the unforgivable sin. After this statement of forgiveness, Jesus, with the same note of authority, the truly, I say to you, carries over. And now Jesus speaks a word which should cause the scribes to tremble. Now, if you look carefully at the relationship between verses 29 and verse 30, you'll see the reason Jesus spoke about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Verse 29, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. The reason Jesus spoke of this eternal sin has everything to do with what the scribes were saying. They were continually proclaiming that Jesus was possessed. Although they knew the truth, that no one did the signs that Jesus did unless God was with him. That's the argument that Nicodemus brings when he comes to Jesus at night. We know that you are from God because no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Yet these scribes, out of jealousy or arrogance or hatred, publicly attributed the work of the Spirit to the work of the devil. And in doing so, blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Now, what is blasphemy? Well, blasphemy is understood by us to be reviling, a slanderous speech against the Lord. Maybe it's the quick blasphemy. You hurt yourself and you call out God's name in a derogatory fashion or a flippant fashion. Or there's the opposition to God in your words generally or your attitude, which is blasphemy. But in Greek, the concept is really bigger and broader Blasphemy as a word, as a category, covered any kind of slanderous speech against God or man. That's why Jesus has just said in the previous statement that He will forgive whatever blasphemies men 
utter. That included a host of reviling words against God and man. For such things there is forgiveness. But for reviling speech from a heart of defiance against the Holy Spirit, specifically, never is there forgiveness. Now what's going on in this passage? The scribes are seeing the most powerful manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the history of redemption. Greater than Moses in the Exodus. Greater than the days of Elijah and Elisha. They're seeing what no one else has ever witnessed, the Spirit of the Lord upon Messiah. And then they're looking at Messiah and saying, you're doing Satan's work. This is a supreme deception. They're beholding the power of the Spirit, testifying that Jesus is the Christ, and they are slandering the Spirit's testimony and calling Jesus the devil, the supreme liar. Now put all this together and what do we have? According to the context, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to slander the Holy Spirit by constantly calling His witness to Christ's glory a heinous lie, a demonic display of power. The heart is so hard, the will so obstinate against the truth that this person, this blasphemer, has put himself past the point of repentance. He persistently rejects the witness of the Spirit to the deity of Christ and calls the Holy Spirit a liar. Now, a huge question that you might have is, what makes these scribes different from the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul said he was a blasphemer, yet he obviously didn't commit the unforgivable sin because he's called, redeemed, and serves as a preacher. Well, do you remember again what Paul said? I thank my God, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, because He has judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. But listen carefully to this next part. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul is not excusing his sin. He's not saying he's worthy of mercy because he acted in ignorance. Rather, he's giving a reason why he could be shown mercy. That he didn't commit the unforgivable sin. He didn't blaspheme the Spirit. Paul was truly ignorant of Jesus' messianic status. He sincerely thought he was serving God by persecuting Christ and His church. Persecuting what he believed to be a false sect. The same could be said for some involved even in Jesus' crucifixion. When Peter and John heal the lame man in Acts chapter 3, and the Jews are amazed, Peter uses it as an opportunity to preach. And he calls the Jews to repentance. And he recounts their sin. They disown Christ. They deliver to Christ to death. They actually put Him to death. And yet Peter says, Acts 3.17, And now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Like Paul, those people had sinned ignorantly. They blasphemed Jesus, but they did it sincerely blind to the Spirit's revelation of Him. Yet that apparently is not the case 
for these scribes in Mark chapter 3. They did not act in ignorance. They saw Jesus' exorcisms. They knew them to be a manifestation of the power of God's Spirit. They knew that that meant Jesus is the Messiah and they should bow to Him as Lord. But they hated Him for contradicting their teaching, really for exposing them as being wrong about ceremonial washings, about Sabbath keeping. They knew that He ought to be worshipped as Lord, but they were not willing to do so. Therefore, though they experienced the power of God's Spirit in all that Jesus was doing in Galilee, they attributed what they knew to be the power of the Spirit to the devil rather than embrace the testimony of the Holy Spirit, which was obvious. They knowingly rejected that testimony. And not only that, they explained it away as total deception. Or if I put it this way, the Holy Spirit brought them clear, unmistakable conviction. And they said, you're just a liar and I reject you and remain adamantly unrepentant. Now, I hope as we even just pause here, this can give some clarification. One of the cardinal sins of interpreting hard passages of the Bible is to fail to pay attention to context. When you read your Bible, context is king. Some people out there will tell you things like, the unforgivable sin is some heinous sexual sin. The unforgivable sin is suicide. No, the unforgivable sin is something the scribes were committing in this passage. And they weren't committing some heinous sexual sin, and they certainly weren't killing themselves. But what they are doing, plainly, is they know Christ is the Lord, and the Spirit's testifying to the truth, and they hate Him, and call him a liar. That's amazing in terms of the hardness of their own heart. Now, some theologians, they, they look at this whole scene and they stop and say, okay, I see this. The unforgivable sin is to see Jesus' miracles empowered by the Spirit and call it demonic. That's what the scribes are doing. And yes, that's unforgivable. They're showing themselves to be reprobates given over to a depraved mind. Yeah, I, I agree. But... Jesus is no longer among us in the flesh, performing miracles by the Spirit's power, so now no one can commit this sin. Not so fast. While it's true, Jesus isn't here in the flesh performing miracles, and thereby no one can see them and call Him doing the devil's work. It is wrong to argue the unforgivable sin can no longer be committed. If Mark's text stood alone, maybe we could draw that conclusion. But the Bible is going to go on to speak, particularly in the book of Hebrews, about a sin past recovery. Let me take you to two texts. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6. As you're turning, the author of Hebrews is speaking to Jewish believers who are plainly knowledgeable of the gospel. They've been witnesses to some degree of the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, because persecution has come upon them, they are contemplating going back to Old Covenant religion and rejecting Christ. In light of that matter, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, the author of Hebrews says this, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, 
who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. What's the threat of the text? It's this. It's having an intellectual understanding of the Gospel, seeing the effects of the Gospel. They would have seen apostolic signs and the power of the Spirit confirming the truth of the Gospel. It's to participate in the sacraments of the church. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They know the conviction of the Holy Spirit as the Word is preached. They know the Word is true. And then in spite of all of those privileges, they turn away from Christ. And they don't just reject Him. They hold Him up to contempt. For such apostasy, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. The sin is an eternal sin. It puts you past the point of repentance. Jesus is seen and known by the power of the Spirit, and yet they reject Christ anyway. And in effect, what the author of Hebrews is saying is uh, such a person doing that is taking up the hammer and nails and crucifying Jesus. Interestingly, the verb they crucify again is in the present tense, indicating a persistent and present activity of crucifying Christ. That is daily with a hard heart. They act like the Romans who held Jesus down and nailed Him to the cross like He was a common criminal. Just like the scribes were saying, present, persistent action, He, Jesus, has an unclean spirit. Then skip forward, brethren, to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. It's in the middle of the verse there. The author again is speaking of such a person who has fallen away with a contemptible view of Jesus that that person has, middle of verse 29, trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned or regarded as defiled the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. They know what is true. They know the testimony of the Spirit, but they despise the blood of Jesus as useless, as detestable. They regard Jesus only as worthy of stepping on like refuge refuse in the streets. And then Hebrews 10.26 says of these, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for, sin, for sins. To sin deliberately is not saying that you struggle with the same old sin but you keep bringing your heart in submission to Jesus. No, to sin deliberately in this context is to know Christ as authority and then to flagrantly walk in your sin despising Jesus. It is to consciously and relentlessly spit in the face of King Jesus while you know He's the Master and say, I'm going to live my way. And I hope you understand, dear friends, that this, this thing here, the Christian, could never do. Once you are regenerated by the power of the Spirit, made alive with Christ, united to Christ, no matter how much you ongoingly wrestle with sin, never will a believer, a true believer in Christ, have this attitude. 
but the one sinning willfully knows and then has perpetual contempt for the Spirit of grace. And for him, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. The sin is, back to Mark 3, the sin is eternal. Have you ever heard liberal theologians deny the concept of hell? Deny the concept of eternal suffering? Hear what King Jesus is saying. He who is guilty of this sin has sinned an eternal sin. What's that mean? There is a hell. And there is eternal suffering. And it's the king of love, not David Gilbert. It's the king of love, the Lord Jesus, who's telling you that. Now, if we put all this information back into Mark 3, the whole thing makes sense. The scribes have received the knowledge of the truth. They've experienced the powers of the age to come. And then they deliberately continued in their sin, ascribing the Spirit's work to the devil. They looked at the author of life as evil. Thus, J.C. Ryle puts it this way. What is the unpardonable sin? Maybe you wish I just would have started with this. What is the unpardonable sin? The most probable view is that it is a combination of clear intellectual knowledge of the gospel with a deliberate rejection of it and willful choice of sin. It is a union of light in the head and hatred in the heart. Now as we think on this, I think we should be intensely sobered. What should we take from what Jesus is telling us? Well, first of all, again, we should be confirmed and comforted that no true believer can commit this atrocity. We may stumble many times and we may fall into grievous sin, but never shall a Christian, a true believer, a regenerate, filled with the Holy Spirit believer, repudiate Christ. However, brethren, this knowledge that a a Christian can't do this, that knowledge must not lead to complacency, but to careful, godly living. Just because we are sensitive about our sin today doesn't mean we'll be sensitive about our sin tomorrow. Do you think the scribes woke up one morning and said, you know what? I hate the Messiah and I'm going to kill him. Do you think Judas, when Jesus called him, thought, I hate you. And you're not redeeming like I want redemption to come. And I'm going to betray you and see you killed. Of course not. It was unthinkable that they would do such a thing. What took place in the hearts of these scribes and in Judas? Well, it's kind of like what happened with Israel in the wilderness. When they're standing on the banks of the Red Sea and they're seeing the dead bodies of Egyptians kind of wrap up on the shore and they're singing and celebrating the redemption found in God, you would think they're they're going to the promised land. And what happened? They reject the Word of God. They saw amazing things. They saw God do all those wonders with the plagues. They sampled the power of the Holy Spirit. They participated in the manna from heaven. They drank water from a rock, which Paul says is drinking of Christ. They even heard the voice of God from the mountain. 
And yet little by little by little, they hardened their hearts in unbelief. They reacted to the word through Moses with stubborn unbelief. They drifted into unbelief and eventually ended up despising the commandments and promises of God. That's why the author of Hebrews says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. See the power of the Holy Spirit working among you and do not resist the Spirit. Because dear friends, it's not Joe Pagan out there who's going to commit the unforgivable sin. It's some in here. It's some who've been given knowledge in the head and are growing cold to the Gospel. No Christian who's truly converted can repudiate Christ. But the proof is in our daily perseverance that we keep on clinging to Jesus. Just as there are faces of the saints upon the Ten Commandments, violations of those commandments and those who've been redeemed, brethren, there is a litany of people in the Bible and in in history who have made shipwreck of their faith. One has said, the Bible reveals how close one may come to the kingdom. Or John Bunyan's even more chilling words. Then I saw there was a way to hell even from the gates of heaven. Make sure this isn't you. Because those who sit in the covenant community, who hear the gospel week after week after week, we are the very ones under the threat of this sin. Our privileges, neglected and despised, make us right for judgment. And yet, those in the covenant community who hear Jesus' voice are also the very ones who, if we cling by faith to Christ, are the most protected against this sin. If you find yourself tempted to forsake Jesus, tempted to give up the faith, tempted to indulge your sin, to drift away on the lazy river of unbelief, if you find yourself under the weight of affliction, wondering if it's easier some other path. If you find yourself having intellectual doubts and not running to Christ, I'm telling you tonight, brethren, the thing you need to do is to grab hold of Jesus and not let Him go. Fight against this sin. For Christ will forgive every kind of sin. So keep coming back to Him. Jesus embraces the dejected, the fallen, the sick, the depressed, the battle-weary. He supports the afflicted. So what do we need to do? We need to have a, a Jacob spirit, I will not let you go unless you bless me attitude, and a Peter spirit. I'm not going to depart from you. You alone have the words of life. May that be how we live, to be protected against this sin. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, we come thanking You for the clarity of Jesus' teaching, thanking You for the truth that Jesus proclaims, that there is a way of forgiveness and it's found in Christ. Lord, we are all guilty, defiled sinners in ourselves and we come in need of the cleansing blood of Jesus. And we pray freshly tonight that You would apply that cleansing blood to us. Lord, also help us 
Not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Not to be seduced by the hand of Satan rocking our cradle to sleep so that we fail to see our danger or consider His seducting influence. Lord, guard and keep us by Your sovereign power. For we look to You and we look to Christ for our redeeming grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen.